Gitin, Perik Dalad, Mishnah Gimel 4.3. Now the Mishnah continues where left off in the previous Mishnah, uh, discussing various Takanos, enactments that were made, to make the world a better place, to repair things that weren't working in society properly. So just a moment's background on the notion of a Takana, to make sure this is clear. Rabbinic enactments basically come in two basic flavors, Gezeros and Takanos. A Gezera, which basically literally means something like a fence, uh, is there to make a protective fence, if you will, around the Doraisa mitzvahs so that people shouldn't um, even come close to transgressing what the Torah prohibits. So those are like rabbinic extensions of the Torah, if you will. That's a gazera. A takana, which means something like a repair, literally, um, is when it's not that the Torah isn't perfect, which it is, but that society isn't perfect and people aren't perfect. And therefore the rabbi sometimes saw fit um, to make adjustments in the way that halacha operates to take into consideration uh, the shortcomings um, or otherwise, you know, yeah, the shortcomings of society and people. And that being the case, um, since really the truth is that, that Torah Shem Tamima, the Torah is perfect, every time there's going to be a takana, it's going to necessarily be the case that there's like, I'll call it unintended consequences, whereby, you know, you've made an adjustment that fixes for something, but there'll be some potentially negative ramifications elsewhere. Okay, that's that's the true of all takanos, and that's sort of the nature of mathematical nature of the beast. If it's if it's a perfect system and you start fiddling with it, of course, um, there are going to be now other imperfections. So, here in our mission, we're going to have three more Takanos that were enacted. Um, the first two focus on things that revolve around Gitin. So, and at least one of them, the first one for sure, is by Rabban Gamliel Hazakin, the same Nasi who was the one who enacted the Takanos in the previous Mishnahs. Pre- excuse me, two Takanos of the previous Mishnah. So, the first case here, uh, let me explain the whole thing outside first. It's a little involved in the Mishnah, is really short, is as follows. When a creditor comes to a debtor and demands to be, let's say, repaid, okay? So if the, so he's, he's waving his IOU, it says, you owe me $50. Now, the debtor, of course, has to pay because that's what the contract says. If the debtor is in court, he wants to make a claim. He says, listen, uh, you know, but I paid you already $10 towards that debt. And, um... So I only need 15. I just can't find my receipt or any other excuse under the sun. So that's going to be too bad for the borrower. He's going to have to pay in full because the contract says he owes 25 and that's what the court will enforce. But um, he is within his rights to at least force the person who's making the claim on him, the creditor, to take a shavua, to swear that he's owed the money. So that'll be his protection. So while he has to pay the full 25, at least he can say, listen, if, you, if, I'm, if you're making me pay you, at least you'll have to swear in front of the court that uh, you're owed the full 25. And a shavua that's administered in a court um, is done with what's called Nikita's chayfetz. The person taking the, the person swearing will essentially hold the safer Torah or something similar, um, like, a, like a tefillin. And he will essentially say, as much as I believe the Torah is true and Hashem is real, I believe that you owe me the 25, the 25 uh, dollars. So that's a heavy-duty thing. And in fact, um, a shvua sheker swearing falsely in court like that is considered to be one of the chamuros, one of the most severe averas that there are. Um, one that requires, let's say, for example, yisurin um, to get a kabara. There's no way around being suffering in consequence for doing that falsely, even if you're going to um, 
you know, do tshuva, etc. Um, and more than that, says the Gemara, that really the whole world suffers. There's there's the, there's a global punishment that comes as a consequence of people um, swearing falsely in such a context with such a weighty chil Hashem that's done with people swearing in Hashem's name, holding a safe Torah, um, and then, you know, not telling the truth. So, um, that's how the setup is normally. Now, if a person, a creditor, is claiming from um, the debtor who's his estate, so the debtor's now died, um, and his heirs are now the ones who are receiving the claim, so they also potentially could push back um, and say, listen, we don't know what happened to you and our father, but you're going to have to swear that we owe you the money because we don't know the facts. And more than that, the Gorn Ksuba says, and this really impinges on our mission specifically, if the heirs are Yisomim, their children, so the courts will force every time someone wants a claim from the, the children, the Yisomim that are heirs, they'll force, they'll require that the creditor takes such a shvua to swear like that. Okay, and that's true for all creditors, all shvuas. That's how the system works. You want to claim money from from a, from a yasum, from an heir who's an orphan, the bezim will require you at all events to exercise the full rights of someone who's having a claim against them, just as their father could have demanded such a shvua when he was alive, will demand on behalf of the heirs, the children, now that the father isn't here. Fine. So that's true across the board. Um... The Mishnah focuses on a specific case, which is a woman who's claiming on her get. Now, a woman, she's a widow, and she's claiming on her husband's estate to get paid her, call it 200 zuz, and she's a creditor like anybody else. And therefore, really, technically speaking, she also would have to take a shvua that she's owed the money. Because the heirs don't know if maybe he paid her during their lifetime part of the money towards her ksuba. They just don't know what happened to him and her. Now, the problem is starting. So that's step one. There's really three steps on our mission, if you will. Step one is that's the setup. Um, she would have to take a shavuah. Step two is this. The rabbis observed that women, you know, who are now widows, who are demanding money from the heirs, who are the children of their of the widow's husband, but may not be their children, maybe step sons, for all we know here, um, are likely to make such a shvua that they're owed in full and they've not been repaid anything towards their ksuba, even when it might not be strictly true according to the letter of the law. Because a woman will be more heter, well, I'll translate that as rationalize. So rationalize and say, listen, you know, whatever money I got during my lifetime that I got was certainly fair for the work I did to support these, you know, these these runty kids, my, you know, my stepkids that I took care of. You know, who do you think, whatever. The point is, she will think that um, whatever money she got, or any, she might think the money she got um, was by rights hers, and she rationalizes it as totally reasonable that she should receive some kind of compensation for the work she did for these children, and therefore she's going to be absolutely ready to sincerely swear she hasn't been paid anything on her ksuba. When really, like as far as Klapi Shemaya, as far as God's concerned, it's just not true. She actually has been paid in part for her ksuba. So the situation was that the court observed that women are swearing falsely, bringing you know ruin on the whole universe because of this terrible crime of of shvua sheker of swearing falsely in court under oath with the nekitz and therefore they said, listen, we can't have this anymore. These women are are just essentially causing chaos. I'm talking spiritual chaos um, by doing these terrible averas. They're going to suffer the consequences. We're all going to suffer the consequences. We just and they're all just sort of being more ahead to. They're all rationalizing it when it's you know because they think they're telling the truth, but they're not. 
So therefore they said, no more of this. We're not letting these women take shavuos in court anymore to get their money from these orphan children that they're claiming from for their ksuma. Um, now, there would be a plan B, but before we get to the plan B, the point is that sets up a basic problem, uh, which is how the women supposed to get their ksuba then, if they can't, if they're required to take a shvua, but the court will them take a shvua. Okay, so putting, there's a plan, uh, you know, plan B, but I'm ignoring that for the moment. Um, so they'd be stuck. So now we have the takana, the takana of Rabban Gamliel, Hazakin, who's once again making takanos here, and he says, listen, even though we can't, we don't want these women to take formal shvuas and bezdin, because they'll bring, you know, punishment to the world by its foreign policy because they rationalize it. But there's a plan B. Instead of using the mechanism called the shvu, we can use a mechanism called a neder. Now, a neder operates quite similarly to shvua in some ways, in that, in that they're both sort of a way in which you can, something has to be true based on what you say. But while the function of a shvu is to confirm the truth of a matter, the function of a neder really is to create iser, to make something be forbidden to you. And it's your standard net would be something like, you know, you know, this chocolate bar is forbidden to me as if it were a korban, uh, which makes the chocolate bar now forbidden. Asr Bahana, the person who makes such a netter, can't get benefit from the chocolate bar. Okay? So, the rabbi said, and you can make, sorry, now you can make Nadarm conditionally. You can say, if I step out of the circle for the next 24 hours, so then... Chocolate should be forbidden for me to me. So now a person's trapped inside the circle for the next 24 hours, and if he ever walks out of the circle, so now the netter kicks in, and now he becomes forbidden to ever enjoy chocolate again. So, Rabban Gamliel Hazakin said, listen, we're not going to make women do the, sh- the widows make the shvua because the consequences are too dire, and they might swear false even if they think they're telling the truth. They mean they mean well even. Instead, what we'll do is we'll say, listen, the heirs, the bezdin, who are acting on behalf of the heirs, whatever it is, um, can force the widow to take not a shavuah, but a neder. And they say, listen, we know you love chocolate, and you would never do anything to limit your access to chocolate. So swear to us, and I say swear, I mean shavuah, make, make the following neder, vow, that if you're not owed the full 200 zuz, so then chocolate should forever be forbidden to you as if it were a carbon. And she agrees to that nether. She makes that nether. Now, so now the kids, of course, will have to pay her, but they at least can feel good that she, in her heart of heart, believes that she's owed the money because otherwise she should have never, you know, sort of taken this this nether, which is also an issue of the rice that now to transgress, of forbidding chocolate to herself ever again. So that was the way that he, Rabban Gamliel Hazakin, um, found a way to sort of satisfy the spirit of this rule, which is that the claimer, in this case the claimant, in this case the the wife is going to tell the truth and we can force her to tell the truth, um, but not employ the mechanism of, of shvuah because of the, the terrible consequences if she swells falsely, even if she meant to tell the truth. So that was the takana, that we have a new way to get these women to tell the truth uh, and to, to swear it to everyone's satisfaction, but not using the mechanism of shvuah. Now, I mentioned there is this plan B. So now Nidarim Masechah Nadarim appears in Seder Nashim, we learned it not, not long ago, because the context in which Nadarim are presented in the Torah says that a husband is able to be uh, Mayfair, he can uh, uh, he can cancel his wife's his wife's Nadarim. So, now, what would happen in our Mishnah if the widow, before she's now cleaned her ksuba from the heirs, goes and remarries? So now she has this, like, secret, you know, like, ace up her sleeve. 
because she can take a net against chocolate bars, and the husband, her husband, her new husband, is totally allowed to be made for a net and say, you know what? Anything that involves um, like self-abnegation, like not eating chocolate, which makes you happy and you like it, um, he's within his rights to, the husband, the new husband, is within his rights to be made for it, to cancel such a, such a, a vow. And therefore, he can just let her off the hook. So that now undermines the spirit of the whole enactment. Now, the, her, her netter means nothing because her new husband can just cancel it anyways. So in such a scenario, there's a plan B. And the plan B for a woman who has remarried uh, really is the same plan B that existed even before the Takana of Rabban Gamliel, Hazakin, uh, which is that while the heavy-duty shvua inside the bezin with Nikita's Chayf is holding it safe for Torah, the equivalent um, carries a severe, severe penalty. If you do a Shavua outside of Bezin, there's no Nikita's Chayfet. You're not holding the Sefer Torah. And like the whole thing's like the severity of the Shavua and the, the false, um, swearing falsely, is like ratcheted down significantly. Let's just to keep it simple, so to speak, say it's it's her problem, not the world's problem. So the consequences are less dire. Um, and that being the case, even before the Takana, a woman could swear to the, do a proper, proper Shavua, swear to the, to the heirs, you know, outside of court. That she's telling the truth, she's owed the, owed the full amount of the ksuba, and they would they would pay her in full because that would satisfy them, perhaps. Um, so of course, they may not be satisfied with that, um, and they could demand the court situation, which is why Rabbi Gamaliel had to make this this takana um, for for you know a, a legal court proceeding, which satisfies all the conditions that we want to achieve here. Um, but the truth is that Plan B of taking a shvua outside of court without the kitas chayfets um, could have been done before. Um, the Takana, and it would be done even after the Takana in an event that the woman has subsequently remarried, so that the, her husband now can't, you know, save her from telling a falsehood about getting paid her ksuba. Okay, so that's the whole Mishnah, uh, part one of the Mishnah, anyways, outside. Inside, it's very brief. It says, Ein almana nefras Step one. A widow cannot be paid out um, from the property of the orphan heirs, unless she first takes a shvua that she's owed in full and hasn't been received, paid out even partially for her ksuba. But then, that's step one. That's the rule, and it applies not just, to, like I said, not just to, to almanos or people claiming ksuba, but to any creditor claiming on the estate from these yosomim, these, these heirs, the orphan heirs. Step two, nimnu milhashbia, they stopped, the courts stopped making widows swear in court because they're afraid that they would be more heter, rationalize um, that they're telling the truth when really they're not telling the truth. They would swear falsely, bringing rack and ruin to the world. But that left the situation where women can't get paid in their kasuba through a court proceeding, and therefore, Hiskin Rabban Gamliel Hazaken, he, Rabban Gamliel Hazaken, the elder, again, I told you this is like the grandfather of of um, the Rabban Gamliel we know and love from the Mishnayas, the grandson of Hillel Hazaken, so he made this takana, that instead of using a shvua, she would make a, a neder, she would be no deris, forswear whatever um, the yosomim choose, and then based on that neder, she'd be able to collect on her ksuba. Okay, that's part one of the Mishnah, and the main part of the Mishnah. Now there's two other takanos mentioned in the Mishnah. Um, it didn't say, by the way, if you... The Mishnah didn't mention so far that it was a Takana, but the next sentence reads, It says that witnesses sign on the get for the sake of Tikkun Olam, to make the world a better place, to repair any you know breaches in the common good. And that 
Mipnei Tikkun Olam refers back to the first part as well. Okay, so there's really a second Takana here now. According to Rush, this Takana that the witnesses sign on the get is also Rabban, um, the same Rabban Gamli Hazaken making another enactment. Uh, Tosot doesn't like that. Tosot understands this existed from earlier on. In any case, what is this enactment? So the simplest way to understand this Mishnah by far, that's how we're going to explain it, is the Mishnah is going like Rabbi Elazar. If you recall, there was a Maklokas between Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Elazar. It's cropped up many, many times already in the Mishnahis that uh, according to Rabbi Meir, it's the signatures on the get themselves, the Eide Chasima that are Karsi, signing the get by the witnesses is what makes it, effectuates this get to be the magic wand which can affect divorce. That's Rabbi Meir. Rabbi Elazar, and the Chalacha is, no, it's Eide Masira Karsi, it's the witnesses observing the handing over of the get, which effects um, the divorce. But the same, so, but there's no need for people to sign anything, technically speaking. The same way, you know, the the get is like the undoing of the Kedushan, right? So, when the two witnesses watch the Chassan give the Kala her, her ring, to effect Kedushan, at Mikudeshli Bataba'at Zu, so she accepts the ring to get to effect Kedushan, and it has to be witnessed by two people, because it's a Darashaba Ereva, we said, needs two witnesses. But nobody is signing the ring. They just observed it, and that's what effected it. So the same thing also, to undo the marriage, you hand over the get, and two witnesses observe it. No one needs to sign the get. They start observing being handed over the same way. But the problem is, what happens if later on her get gets called into question, or her, situ- her status as being a divorcee is called into question, so she has to now find the witnesses to evidence that she really is a divorced woman. Now, maybe she doesn't know who they are, where they are, how to find them. She's going to be in the dark. But if they signed on the get, the same people who watched the Messiah, the handing over the get, signed on the get itself, will know who to turn to, where to find them, how to get some evidence to prove this woman is, is properly divorced. So that being the case, they made a Takana. Takana was that the people, even though you don't need to have witnesses sign anything for the sake of effecting a divorce, but the Takana is, but the witnesses should sign their names on the get so that we know where to find them if we need them. Okay, that's the second Takana. And that's like reading it like coins of The third, totally unrelated, it says Hillel, Hillel this is Hillel Hazaken, the grandfather of Rabbi Bermagaliel Hazaken, so he made a famous takana, Hiskin Prozbol Mepnei Tikkun Olam. He made the takana called Prozbol for the sake of also making the world a better place, fixing up the world. Um, I'm going to discuss this very briefly. Prozbol is a more complicated topic, discussed back in the end of Meseches Shvius. But uh, Prozbol, in short, is like this. Prozbol, the word is in a like a portmanteau with an abbreviation, if you will, like a of the of the words Pros, a decree for bully and buti, for the rich and the poor. And the idea is like this. The Torah warns. First of all, the Torah has a din that on the, at the end of the seventh year of the Shemitah cycle, there's Shemitah's Ksafim, any loans that have been made have now been are now released. And the borrower does not need to repay them. Even though the borrower maybe should repay them, but he's under no legal obligation anymore to repay them at the end of the seventh year. Now, that is all fine and good, but the problem is in the sixth year, therefore, rich people who are asked to lend money to poor people will be very hesitant because... They're going to not get their money back necessarily. And although the Torah says, in black and white, it specifies that you should not, you rich people, you should not think that. A nasty thought should be, protect yourself from having any like iniquitous thoughts in your hearts. Lamor, Karva Shnasa Sheva, the seventh year is coming, Shnasa Shemitah. 
and you ha- cast a nasty eye on your fellow Jew who's now impoverished, and you don't give him the money he needs because you just don't want to lose your money. So Hillel said, well, the Torah says that the rich people should give and not be afraid. The rich people were not giving because they were afraid. So Hillel made a takana called prisbal. And the super simple idea of prisbal is, it's a, I'll call it a loophole now, which allows for the loan not to be forgiven. And the way it works is that the person who lends the money assigns his loan over to a bezdin um, for collection. And since the money owed to a bezdin is not you know, released, it's not a remittance of loans, of obligations to bezdin when there's a remittance of loans to individuals. Therefore, when the rich person hands over his loan to the bezdin by mechanism of this prisbal, so then even after Shemitah is over, the poor person still has to make payments on the loan that he received. And although that, and then the then the rich person, I'll call it, he essentially acts as an agent to collect the money on behalf of the Bezdin to collect his money back. So although it definitely is like a loophole and not in the spirit of the law whatsoever, classic Takana, um, nevertheless, uh, Hillel felt this was a way better situation um, where we sort of skirt the halachas, or the derise of the, the spirit of the law so that poor people can have money and also rich people aren't over the Isra is the rise of having this terrible thought uh, of withholding money, and therefore society can function as the Torah imagined ought to function, and people will be protected. So that's his takana, the takana of prisbol. And um, there's a lalacha, this last point that's a little more, it's a, comp, it's a question if prisbol only applies um, when the mitzvah of Shemitah's Ksafim is a derabanan. Right now, it's we possibly is a Durabanan because the majority of Jews are back. Majority of Jews are not living in Eretz Israel currently, and never have been since the end of Bias Rishon, um, and that was was the case in Hillel's time. And because the whole mitzvah is Durabanan, he enacted something like this to, to circumvent. But when Bez Hashem, Yovels are back being observed, the Jews are back in Eretz Israel, Shemitah will kick back in, and Prizel will be now you know no longer operative. That's how many learn. Um, but others are no others aren't even if the everything goes back to normal and Prizel comes with the Raisa through the mechanism of what's called Hefker, Bez, and Hefker. There's the possibility that even with the Raisa that the Prizel still would work and people continue to, you know, to function as, as, as it does now.